1: Today on Something You Should Know, the interesting stories of how some food products got their names, then inventions that dramatically changed how we see the world, television, eyeglasses, the smartphone,
2: even mirrors. And that being able to see their own reflection gave people a self-realization, the idea that they could see themselves as others saw them, and that got them thinking about, I am actually a different person, I'm not just part of the group, I'm an individual.
1: Also, you've probably been told to stand up straight and suck in your gut, which is actually bad advice. And why do we have so much trouble with big decisions about love and money?
0: You know, the conventional wisdom is that you make love decisions with your heart and money decisions with your head, and that's just not right. Love and money decisions are
1: intertwined. All this today on Something You Should Know. So I live with seasonal allergies, always have. If you do, and it seems so many people have allergies, you know it's no fun. For me, the worst part is that allergies ruin my sleep because I get all stuffed up and, and then I can't sleep. Plus, allergies can make my voice sound weird, which in my line of work is it's not a good thing. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. I use Claritin-D, I have for years, for the simple reason that it clears up my allergies and it relieves the stuffiness. If you have seasonal allergies, you really should try Claritin-D. You see, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms, like the sneezing, watery eyes, scratchy throat, and it decongests your nose so you can breathe better. If you're ready to live life as if you don't have allergies... Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, and welcome to Something You Should Know. Have you ever been in your kitchen and looked in the cupboards or in the refrigerator and looked at some of the food and wondered, why is it called that? Where did that name come from? Well, here are the origins of some popular, uh, somewhat random, but some popular foods that may be in your kitchen. First of all, Philadelphia cream cheese. It didn't really come from Philadelphia. It started in New York. It was called Philadelphia cream cheese because that city was associated with high-quality food products. Gatorade, as you might imagine, does not contain any alligator in it. It was a kidney specialist from the University of Florida who helped develop it for the school's football team, the Florida Gators. So they named the drink Gatorade. The product name Spam was chosen for the canned meat from a contest. There is no official explanation for its meaning, but most people assume Spam stands for spiced ham. The Frisbee, the Flying Disc Frisbee, comes to you courtesy of the Frisbee Pie Company of Bridgeport, Connecticut. The empty pie tins were perfect for throwing like a Frisbee. And since it was the Frisbee Pie Company, they became known as Frisbees. The first plastic version was called the Pluto Platter Flying Saucer. wham bought the rights and stamped Frisbee on it instead. Marshmallows started out as medicine... In the 1800s, juice from the roots of the marshmallow plant were extracted and cooked with egg whites and sugar. It was whipped up and given to children to soothe sore throats. And that is something you should know. Now, I love it when I see a topic to discuss here that I didn't actually know was a topic to discuss. And that's what you're about to hear. We're going to discuss the history of what we see and how we see it. Because how we see ourselves and how we see the world has changed. And what's caused those changes are certain inventions, certain technologies that alter our vision. I mean, imagine the first mirror. When people could actually see themselves clearly the way other people do, that had to change a lot. It's pretty remarkable. Or the telescope, television, the smartphone, All these things have altered our view of ourselves and the world in some way. Here to explain all this is Susan Denham-Wade. She's author of a book called A History of Seeing in 11 Inventions. Hey Susan, welcome to Something You Should Know.
2: It's great to be here, Mike.
1: So explain first how you came up with this idea and formed it into a topic for discussion.
2: Well, the inspiration for the book was the 2014 internet meme that became known as hashtag the dress. Uh, This was a a photograph of a dress that was bought for a wedding that found its way onto the internet and the dress was striped. Um, And the reason um, it went so viral and was actually one of the first global memes was because when people looked at the image online, they couldn't agree whether the stripes of the dress were white and gold or blue and black. This went all around Twitter with various celebrities weighing in on their opinions. Um, It was discussed on newscasts. And this really intrigued me and got me to wondering, wow, if people in the same time and place can look at the same thing and see something different, did people who lived hundreds or even thousands of years ago see their worlds differently differently? Um, and that was the question I set out to to answer, and that was the beginning of the journey.
1: And so where did that journey take you? What did you find from looking at all this?
2: Well, I, I found that indeed people have seen their, their worlds differently uh, over time, and that there have been a variety of, of uh, technologies that mankind has either harnessed or discovered or invented that have really changed the world as we saw it. But not only that, each of these visual technologies have, has coincided with a really major inflection point in human history. So one of the big conclusions that I came to was that the world seen differently becomes a different world. So when you say,
1: as you just said a few minutes ago, that in earlier times people saw their world differently, what does mm-hmm. that mean?
2: Well, if you take, for example, the invention of mirrors, the very first known mirrors were discovered in a, a proto town, one of the very earliest settled communities, which is in Anatoly, which is now part of Turkey. Uh, and this was a settlement of about up to 8,000 people, which existed between about 8,000 and 5,500 years ago. And archaeologists exploring this site came upon these mirrors at a time when the society fundamentally changed as far as they could tell. Up until the, the, the point that we're talking about, the society they the, the archaeologists described it as fiercely egalitarian. There was no um, there were no signs of different status, food and other implements were shared, people's homes were more or less the same size, um, and then Around the layer of the of the site where these mirrors were discovered, archaeologists noted a, a shift in the psychology of this community to to identify a much greater sense of individualism and the emergence of a sense of self, which I think is completely mind blowing. That we don't know what came first: the sense of self, and then that generated a desire to find mirrors, or whether someone had created these mirrors. And that being able to see their own reflection gave people a self-realization, the idea that they could see themselves as others saw them. And that got them thinking about, well, who am I? Am I, I am actually a different person. I'm not just part of the group. I'm an individual. And in later history, with the development of psychology, for example, in the 19th century, the start, well, actually, going right back to the Romans, the mirror has become symbolic um, as a, a tool for exploring the self. But it's incredibly interesting to me that um, going right back through human history, it appears that um, mirrorless societies tend to be highly egalitarian without much of a sense of individuality. And it's only Um, But the appearance of mirrors tends to coincide with that individuality. So this is an example from a long time ago um, of how uh, a change in technology, in visual technology and seeing something different caused a fundamental shift in mindset.
1: So if the invention of the mirror was so transformative and people could see themselves as individuals rather than just part of the group, I mean, imagine what photography must have done because... A mirror, a a look in the mirror is a fleeting thing, but photography lasts forever.
2: All the excitement about photography when it was first announced, this amazing technology that could capture an image permanently, was all about how it was going to represent the great landscapes of the world and the great monuments of antiquity and uh, the works of art. And none of the inventors or promoters of early photography um, mentioned the idea of portraiture. But as soon as photography was announced, people uh, set up portraiture studios. And this was the absolute killer app for photography. Um, all very well to see the great sights of the world and, and the great works of art. But what people really wanted to see was themselves and each other. And photograph studio photography studios set up all around um, Europe and around the USA um, And people, for the price of a day's wages, could get an image of themselves to keep forever. And the market for it was huge. Something like um, 90% of photographs taken in the first 50 years of photography were were portraits.
1: When you see early photography, early portraits, no one's smiling. No, No one seems to be particularly happy at all.
2: Well... In the earliest photographs, um, the earliest process was called a daguerreotype. Um, they, they took a l- about um, 10 to 15 minutes for the exposure to happen. So people had to stand very, very still in that time. So the photographic studios uh, developed all kinds of um Props to help people stay still. So, if you see people standing up, often you'll see them. There's a pedestal that they've got an arm resting on, or they're sitting on a chair with their slightly um, unnaturally raised arms. And all of these uh, were were devices to help people stand really still for that time, um, so that the the image could could uh, take on the on the the film used at the time. Um, and so, I guess it's pretty hard to hold a smile for that length of time. So they were probably advised just to keep it fairly serious.
1: Another one of these inventions you talk about is the telescope, and which not only changed the way we see the world, but but the universe.
2: Usually credited to Galileo, but in fact the first telescope to be brought forward publicly uh, was from a Dutch spectacle maker whose name was Lippe But he tried to patent his telescope, but he was refused because uh, the patent office decided it was too easy to copy. And unfortunately for him, um, the patent office was right because people started making telescopes all around Europe. And Galileo was this very talented mathematician um, and craftsman. And he spent, he got the idea of the, heard about the idea of the telescope and made his own very um, much, much more powerful than the original telescopes that were made. And he trained his telescope on the night sky and saw things that um, amazed, truly amazed the world and changed forever really how people saw their world. What he saw was um, around the planet of Jupiter, uh, three small, um, smaller stars the planets were called the wandering stars. They were all considered to be stars, but, but it had long been observed that the planets move through the night sky in a different way than the other what were called the fixed stars. But he saw that there was this smaller group of stars that followed Jupiter across the sky throughout from night after night. And this was a radical thought because up until then the received view um, of uh of how the universe worked was with the earth was at the center and the sun the moon and all the other planets the the stars rather the wandering stars and the uh, fixed stars rotated around the earth but there had been some um, theorizing um, in the previous 50 years that uh, most famously by Copernicus, that this might not be the right way to view the universe, that in fact the sun might be the centre of the universe and the planets revolved around it. Um, and But this was a heresy because there were various passages in the Bible that suggested that the earth was the centre um, and so on. But uh, Galileo's discovery um, showed that because these That many stars followed Jupiter around. He concluded that they were moons of Jupiter, and that demonstrated that um, the Earth wasn't necessarily the center of the universe. Uh, This was radically controversial at the time, and indeed Galileo eventually was hauled up in front of the Inquisition more than once, and he spent his final years in under house arrest. Uh, So it didn't have a happy ending for him, but it did kick off. A, a whole new way of viewing nature.
1: We're talking about some important inventions that have really altered the way that you and I see the world. And my guest is Susan Denham-Wade, author of A History of Seeing in 11 Inventions.
0: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and...
1: So, Susan, in your list of inventions is eyeglasses. I mean, there there is an invention that literally changed the way people viewed the world, but people with vision problems. So, talk about that.
2: The very first eyeglasses were convex glasses, which is the, the ones that correct for long sight. They were most useful for people who were reaching middle age. Um, so, just as today, uh, we reach our 40s or 50s. And we find it more difficult to see close up. And convex glass lenses can help us. Convex spectacles can can refocus our eyes uh, to to improve our that sort of vision. So, if you were born very short sighted uh, around the time that the first spectacles were invented, around twelve seventy eight in Italy, um, I'm afraid you they wouldn't have been much help to you. But what was so important about about glasses? Um, and the time at the time they were first invented, was that they extended the useful life of so many of the um, artists, artisans, and scholars of that time, because they they allowed them to keep working beyond a time when ordinarily their their failing eyesight would have forced them to stop. Um, and uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that the invention of spectacles, as I say, towards the end of the 1200s, happened just on the cusp of what became the Renaissance, the amazing, and in Italy, the amazing flowering of art, scholarship, architecture that that happened in the next couple of hundred years. Um, It wasn't until around 1450 that concave spectacles, which correct for short sight, were invented. But obviously that, again, would have been a massive revelation for people who were born um, short-sighted. Although there were many, many fewer short-sighted people then than there are now. There's been a massive increase in short-sightedness, in particular over the last 70 years since the invention of television, in fact. And the explanation for that is not that television itself damages our eyes, But ever since televisions came into our lives, um, children in particular have spent more time inside um, and that does damage our eyes. Uh, One report suggests that for every additional hour spent outside, um, your chance of developing myopia, that's short-sightedness, reduces by 2%. And that's because even on the dullest day, uh, natural daylight is about 10 times as bright as uh, artificial light. And our eyes need daylight uh, for their health, and especially children as their eyes are growing and developing. Well, I would
1: think that television is one of the big game changers in your list of inventions because it not only changed how we see the world, it it really brought the world into our homes, uh, good and bad. We could see things we could never see before.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, television, you know, created the consumer society as we sat watching, happily watching TV shows through the fifties, funded by advertisers um, who showed us all the lovely products we could buy. And we obediently went out to buy them, whereas previous generations, you know, did without those things. Now, I'm not saying that a lot of those products haven't made our lives easier and better, but they have convinced us that we need a lot of stuff uh, that somehow we managed to live without uh, before. Before we saw it all advertised on television, and politics drastically changed by television. Um, you'll you'll remember well, probably not yourself, but you'll you'll know the story um, of the television debate between Nixon and Kennedy uh, just before before the election, uh, the presidential election between those two. Those who listened to it on radio named Nixon the winner of the debate. Uh, but those who watched it on television saw nixon looking a little sweaty he'd been ill he had a dark shadow under his um under his uh, makeup of his of his beard coming through um kennedy had who was a much more sickly person on the whole had spent the morning sitting in the sun um had a crisp white shirt um and exuded relaxed good health Um, And those who watched the debate on television, and it was the most watched program ever, I think something like 60 million people watched it, uh, declared Kennedy the winner. And sure enough, he won that election. Um, And, you know, more recent times have seen uh, telegenic um, candidates become president once again.
1: And then there is the smartphone, which not only has changed the way we see the world, in many ways it is the world that we see because we spend so much time looking at it.
2: Uh, We spend hours and hours a day checking our phones. Many, many people have their phone by their bed. It's the last thing they look at before they go to bed. It's the first thing they look at when they wake up in the morning. Uh, It's become the dominant feature of our lives, really. Increasingly, with all the apps available, um, Pretty much every aspect of our lives can be channeled through this little screen in our hand. It's not just a phone. In fact, the phone is one of the least used uh, features of a smartphone. It's our encyclopedia. It's our car key. It's our bank. It's our email. It's our, it's our encyclopedia. It's our entertainment device. It's, it's pretty much everything. that um, It's our window onto the world. Um, and what that's meaning, um it seems to me, is that we're using uh, our other senses less and less. So we are um, I'm sure we're all guilty of sending a text to someone, even if they're in the next room, uh, rather than putting our head round the corner and having a conversation. Or, or texting a friend or one of our family members uh, just to say hi and have a little catch up uh, just because it's kind of quicker and easier rather than speaking to them on the phone. Um, and this is actually not great for our, our mental and and eventually um, leading on from that physical health because we really need to hear each other. There was a research study done um, at Wisconsin University that put a group of, of young girls, school children, ages, I think, 7 to 12, in a stressful situation where they were asked to give a presentation to some strangers. Um, and after that, and they had them wired up to measure the, the level of cortisol, the stress hormone, in their bodies. And after they'd um, been put in this situation, a quarter of the girls were allowed to go and be with their mothers and talk to them face-to-face. A second quarter w- was allowed to speak to their mothers on the phone. The third quarter was allowed to um, text with their mothers, and the fourth group uh, had to go and sit quietly alone. And what the researchers found was that the girls who spoke to their mothers on the telephone calmed down as much as the girls who uh, were with their mothers and talking to their mothers face to face. Whereas the girls who just texted their mothers calmed down as little as the girls who just sat quietly alone. And although researchers, um, you know, serious researchers are very um, wary about jumping to too many conclusions from what they find, the title of the research was why we still need to hear each other. And if you think about it, verbal and oral communication has been our primary form of communication for tens of thousands of years. This is, you know, language is what, one of the things that made us human. We are, we are hardwired to learn to speak. No child ne- needs to be taught to speak. They just pick it up naturally. It's part of our, it's, it's in our DNA. Whereas everyone has to be taught to read and write. It's not an innate human skill. It's a learnt, uh, learnt ability.
1: Well, as I said at the start, this is a topic that I didn't really know was a topic. You actually really created the topic by putting these 11 inventions together and looking at the world through them and it's, it's been a lot of fun. Susan Denham-Wade has been my guest. The name of the book is A History of Seeing in 11 Inventions, and you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Susan. This was fun.
2: Well, thank you very much, Mike.
1: It's been a while since I've talked about The Jordan Harbinger Show, but I've, I've been listening all along. The Jordan Harbinger Show is a podcast that I'm going to predict you will really like since you like this podcast, something you should know. With each episode of the Jordan Harbinger Show, Jordan digs deep into fascinating topics with fascinating people. It's a little different than the topics we cover, but still so, so interesting. Recently, he had a great two-part conversation with ex-federal agent Robert Mazur about how money laundering works. Now, I've always, I've always wondered about that, and well, now I know. And there was another great conversation with Adam Gamal. He's an American Muslim who fought terrorism in one of the U.S.'s most secret special forces units. It is a riveting conversation. If you want to broaden your worldview and discover some truly thought-provoking ideas and insights, you really should try The Jordan Harbinger Show. As you'll hear, Jordan is a great interviewer and really gets people to open up. Search for The Jordan Harbinger. Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When it comes to major decisions in your life, there are a couple of categories that are huge. They are love and money. And as you may have noticed in your own life, we tend to struggle with those decisions and end up regretting some of them. So, why is that? Why do we mess up some of the biggest decisions in our lives? And how can we make better love and money decisions? Well, here to discuss that is Myra Strober. She is a labor economist and professor at Stanford University and author of a book called Money and Love An Intelligent Roadmap for Life's Biggest Decisions. Hi, Myra. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Thank you, Mike. So I would imagine that everyone listening can think back to a decision regarding love or money or both that they regret. So why do you suppose that is? I mean, why do we mess up what seems to be such an important decision?
0: (laughs) I think there are two reasons. One is that um, people don't make these decisions in a systematic way. That's the first reason. And um, the second reason is that people tend to see money and love decisions as separate. So money decisions concern money and love decisions concern love and never the twain shall meet. But in fact, um, most life's decisions, especially the big ones, are both love and money decisions.
1: But it seems to me it's not only the decision you make, because you could make what appears to be the right decision, but things don't always go according to plan. Things don't go the way you think they're going to go. Life has a way of serving up curveballs that if things had gone the way you thought, that decision would have been great, but, but it didn't go that way. So, but how would you have known? You
0: certainly can't predict the future, but you can ask yourself when you make your decision, what are the likely consequences of this decision? What are the likely things that are going to happen? So for example, if you're considering moving to another city for uh, a job and you have a family, you know, you might think this is a money decision. The, The money is so much better in this new job. But in fact, it's a love decision too because your family is involved. And if, you know, six months down the line, your daughter is depressed because she can't adjust to her new school. Um, Had you thought in advance, what are the likely consequences for my daughter of this decision? You might have uh, predicted that she would have a difficult time. You might've taken some steps to ease that transition and uh, the situation might be a little bit better had you anticipated the consequences.
1: Well see that that's a good example of what i mean that your daughter might have trouble adapting to her new school. She might thrive in the new school. There's no way to know until it happens and it only happens after the decision and then you have to deal with the consequences but you can't have predicted that. I mean it's kind of a it's kind of a crapshoot.
0: No, I don't really think it's quite a crapshoot. Of course, you can't know everything. Uh, for instance, you can't know that the, the girl next door to where you moved uh, is going to make life difficult for her. You, could, you couldn't know that. But you, you know your daughter. You know if she adjusts easily to new circumstances or not. You could have a converse, you should have a conversation with your daughter about this move, unless she's, you know, under the age of five, um, and ask her, what is this going to be like for you? Are you looking forward to it? Are you concerned about it? What are you concerned about? And then you could take steps to try to mitigate the effects of this for her.
1: So I guess maybe what my point was is that that it it is human nature to think about the road not taken. And so you'll always wonder what if, when faced with a choice like what you're talking about, should I move there? Should I take that job? Should I marry that person you, or that person? You're always going to wonder, no matter what you choose and how great a decision, what if you had done something different?
0: Well, I think that may be true. But we have a very flexible five-step framework for making these decisions. And um, what the hope is, is that after you've taken these five steps, you have convinced yourself that this is the best decision that you can make, given whatever circumstances you're facing. So, you know, you might be taking a walk in the beautiful woods and think about (laughs) What might have happened, you know, had your parents been born millionaires, but you, you need to deal with reality and you need to convince yourself, and I think our framework helps you do that, that this is the best decision that you could make, given what you knew at the time.
1: So what are those five steps?
0: Well, the first one is clarify. Clarify for yourself what it is that you want. What's important to you? and what's important to you, not to your parents or your spouse or uh, somebody else in your life. Uh, try to figure out what you really care about. And then the second step is communication. Uh, then you need to communicate that to whoever else is in your life making these decisions with you. Um, and you know, as you communicate, Uh, and you listen to the other person's um, hopes and dreams, you may revise your own. You may start thinking about some issues that you hadn't thought about before. So first clarify and then communicate. And then you need to consider a broad range of choices. So let's go back to the moving decision. You've been offered a job in another city, your family agrees that you need more money. It's a good career step for you. And you have already clarified that your career is important to you. But what are the other possible choices? Have you looked around in the same city where you are at other possible jobs? Or did this this new uh, job possibility come out of the blue and it seems so attractive and you're gonna take it? So unless you convince yourself that in order to get what it is you're looking for, you must move, um, you may well be sorry later on because you didn't do, uh, the kind of, uh, seeking, uh, that would give you a broader range of choices. Uh, the fourth step is check-in. So it's the five C's framework. These all start with C's. Clarify, communicate, consider a broad range of choices, and now check-in. So you want to check in with family and friends and other people um, whom you admire and and ask them, have they faced these kinds of decisions? What did they do? How did it turn out for them? Share your thought process with them. I'm doing this because um, I I want more money. I'm doing this because I think my career will be furthered by this. Um, Ask them about family um ramifications of decisions that they may have made and the f- la- last step is what I talked about before explore the likely consequences and you need to explore the consequences both short term and long term so let's go back to the daughter who uh, is not happy in the new environment maybe she's not happy you know 6 months after you move but maybe she's in a school that's far better than the one that she left. And three years from now, uh, she'll realize that this was a really good move uh, because her school life and her education uh, is far better than it would have been. So, you know, there are short-term consequences and longer-term
1: consequences. Well, your your five-step process, it certainly makes sense. It sounds good, but how do you know it works? I mean, is, is there research? Did how do you know that doing those five steps are better than any other five steps that somebody would come up with?
0: (laughs) I taught a course at the Stanford, uh, business school and also in, uh, the undergraduate part of the university, um, for more than 40 years, uh, on the topic of work and family. And so over that time I've had thousands of students who write back to me and say, I mean, not all thousands write back, but many of them write back and say, you know, thinking about these issues when I was in your course has really helped me down the line. I feel that I have better decisions. I feel that this helps me when I have a big decision to make, I think about the class. And in fact, my co-author, Abby Davison, was a student in that class. And the man who took the class with her is now her husband. So they, <laughs> they have used this framework, you know, for their entire marriage. And now they have two young children. And, you know, the anecdotal evidence is that people feel helped by this framework and this way of deciding.
1: When people make decisions on their own and don't use your process, where is it you think people tend to go wrong?
0: Well, I think they haven't really gone through steps one and two. They have not clarified for themselves what it is they want. Most of us are stuck for life with, you know, our parents' voices in our heads. And our parents, for the most part, not all parents, but our parents uh, pretty much told us what they want for us. And somewhere along the line of reaching an adult, we need to put our parents' voices in the background, develop our own voices, and uh, make decisions based on our own voices. But I think lots of people still uh, are not making decisions that that are going to benefit them uh, as much as, as might be the case.
1: Well, I think and the that, second place yeah.
0: they go wrong is in communication. So a lot of these decisions are fraught because couples are in different places in their lives and they haven't taken the time to come together and figure out what it is they can both agree upon. And I I think a lot of these fraught decisions uh, come when, when couples have other issues underlying this particular decision.
1: Well, what you said about really taking the time to figure out what it is you want, not what somebody else wants, that's a step I think a lot of people skip because there are so many other influences and there's so many assumptions people make about what they want that they don't really stop and go, hey, wait a minute, let's really stop here. What is it I want?
0: Right. And, and so, think about somebody deciding to apply to medical school. Their whole life, up to that point, their parents have said, you know, this would be a good career for you. Uh, their older brother is already in that career. And so, they talk to their older brother, and their older brother says, you know, this is just a wonderful career. I, I just love uh, medicine. I love being a doctor. Well, the next step is to talk to some other people who don't like being a doctor or who thought they might and decided otherwise. You know, if you stack the deck uh, toward a certain decision, uh, you don't really have enough input to figure out if this is the right decision for you.
1: Well, and you know, we've talked about it on this podcast before. I think people do tend to fall into that confirmation bias trap where they just look for things that confirm what they their gut is telling them.
0: Yes, I think that's right. And that's why, you know, you may need help figuring out what you need. But yes, confirmation bias could be a real problem. You do want to talk to some people who have a different perspective and see what you think about that.
1: But it would also seem that as you make these decisions, it's not just a snapshot in time. There's got to be course correction because the decision, you know, you you decided to take this new job, but then the guy that hired you left and now you've got a new – so there's always things that happen. It isn't frozen in time that I made this decision and now we go forward the way I decided.
0: True enough. I mean, you know, there's an old Yiddish saying that – man plans and God laughs. laughs because planning only gets you so far. There are things that happen that nobody anticipated. Um, nonetheless, if you don't plan, I, I, you know, you're certainly not gonna get what you want. So yes, you have to have course corrections and you and your spouse need, or your partner need good communication. So when this new curveball comes onto the field, Uh, You have somebody to talk to about it and, you know, okay, what are we going to do next? And it's we, even though it's a job decision, it involves love. Uh, It involves your family and, um, you know, they need to be supportive of you and they need to know what they want.
1: I can just think back in my own life of of some decisions I've made that I I didn't really, I kind of like already had it in my head what the decision was going to be without really going through any process of of, it just felt right. It just seemed right. This is an opportunity I can't pass up. I suspect that happens to a lot of people where they just say, wow, I've got to grab this right now and go and never do what you're talking about.
0: Yes, that's what I have learned over the years is that people tend to do that. And you know, it's rare that a decision this big has to be made certainly within 24 hours or maybe even within a week. And um, people need to take the time to go through our process, to check in with other people whom they admire and and make sure they check in with people who uh, have a different uh, perspective than theirs and take the time to make these decisions. You know, take the decision, who am I going to marry? Certainly, you have to make that decision in part with your gut. I mean, you don't wanna marry someone, never mind marry, but live with them, be a partner with them. It doesn't matter whether marriage is involved particularly or not. But, you know, is this the person I wanna spend the rest of my life with? Well, that is surely a biggie and um you want your gut to be involved but you want your head to be involved too and you want to think about the financial implications of this decision and um making that decision solely with your gut is is not going to necessarily work out
1: well it's interesting we make decisions all day long and big ones and little ones and often don't think about the process of making the decision. We just make the decision and and ha, and, and, and then have to live with the consequences.
0: You know, Daniel Kahneman talks about system one thinking and system two thinking. System one, you make the decision with your gut and you move on. Uh, system two is more like the framework we are proposing. And you need to make these very big love money decisions using system two thinking and particularly i think our framework is helpful the second thing is that love and money decisions are intertwined you know the conventional wisdom is that you make love decisions with your heart and money decisions with your head and you know that that's that's just not right um even when you're deciding you know, how to invest your portfolio, you might think that that is only a financial decision, but it isn't because the question now is, what do you want? What do you want this money to do for you? To whom do you wanna leave the money if there's money left over at the end and why and what are their needs? So there are no purely financial decisions and no purely love decisions. They're all intertwined.
1: Well, it is so easy, even with even with really big decisions, to go with your gut. You know, the, oh, this just feels right, and I enjoy hearing what you say about you know. There's a system. There's a way to analyze this that isn't quite so romantic as going with your gut, but may yield a better decision. I've been talking to Myra Strober. She's a labor economist and professor at Stanford University. The name of her book is Money and Love, An Intelligent Roadmap for Life's Biggest Decisions. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Myra. enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thanks, Mike.
1: How many times have you been told to stand up straight and suck in your gut? Well, the stand up straight part's probably fine. It's the sucking in your gut thing that could be a problem, even though some people do it all the time. When you suck in your stomach, it prevents you from breathing properly. That shallow breathing can actually lead to anxiety and poor balance and crummy posture. It can also lead to incontinence and a whole host of other problems. So, stand up straight, that's fine, but relax your stomach muscles. And that is something you should know. If someone asks you what podcasts you listen to, I hope you'll remember to tell them about this one. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. Every story eventually comes to an end. This June, hear the final episode of Season 2 of the hit podcast series, In the Red Clay, Durham. In the Red Clay tells the unbelievable true story of Billy Sunday Burt, the most dangerous man in Georgia history. In the podcast that people are calling riveting, incredibly moving, captivating, and addicting. Binge seasons one and two of In the Red Clay now, wherever you listen. Hey guys, welcome to the Candy Valentino Show. I'm Candy Valentino. I was a founder before I could legally order a drink. And for more than two and a half decades, I've built, scaled, acquired, and exited multiple businesses in diverse industries. Now my goal is to help you by sharing the knowledge that I've learned, the mistakes that I've made, and the wisdom that I've developed over my journey. Bi-weekly episodes every Monday and Thursday. The Candy Valentino Show, wherever you listen.